Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As we get this new year underway, uh, we are considering the unique assignments that God has for us as a church. Now, we are calling these assignments God dreams, and this is our working definition of a God dream. It is a vision of the future that begins in the mind of God and is then given to us. Now, we all dream, of course, about the future, but we were created for God dreams, not just me dreams. We all dream about what can happen, but God calls us to come together in the context of church to bring about some unique things that can only happen as we gather together as a church and bring those dreams into reality. Now, whenever God gives us a dream or a vision of the future, it's presented inside of a frame, and it has limits to it. And that's because while God dreams are big, we are limited. And so God gives us a doable part of his vision of the future. And that frame, as all frames do, has four sides that mark the limits to what we can accomplish and the assignments that God has given us. Now, the first side of the frame is our mission. And I'll put this word up there. Our mission answers the what question. This is the what are we doing? And it's just a simple statement that helps us stay on track and stay focused on what it is that we are assigned to do before God. And this is our statement that helps us stay on track. We looked at this in detail last week, but here it is, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. And I unpacked that sentence last week, but that's our sentence that we continually come back to and remind ourselves this is what we're doing. Everything we do can be found under this sentence. The next side of our frame that we're going to begin to look at today is our values. Now, values answer the very important why question. Why are we doing these things? Now, it turns out that God is not only concerned with what we do, but very concerned with why we do it. What we do is kind of like the tip of the iceberg. It's the 10% above the waterline that everybody can see. Why is that 90% that nobody can see that's below the waterline, but really drives and has most of the weight behind what happens above the waterline, what we can see. And so it is the whys that will determine what we do over time. What can maybe just be a seasonal or maybe under pressure or maybe just for a moment we'll do a, a bunch of different things, but it's why that determines what we will do over a long period of time and therefore what really is going to happen among us. Now, as a church, we have five value phrases to help us remember over and over again why we are doing the assignment that God has given us to do. Today we're going to look at the first of the five, and next week we're going to look at number two and three, but the first one we're going to look at today is us for them, us for them. Now if you've been around Seabreeze for a while, you've probably heard this phrase, because we started using this phrase, uh, came out of a message I did probably about 20 years ago. We started using this phrase a lot about 20 years ago. In fact, this is a license plate from someone here at Seabreeze who decided that they wanted this on their car. And so they uh, got this on their, their license plate and took a picture of it and had it framed. And I, this sits on my office to kind of remind me of this value that we have as a church. Now, this, this simple phrase, us for them, comes from an observation about the life of Jesus and what he demonstrated over and over again in his time here on earth. In Luke chapter 15... This us-for-them value that Jesus had and demonstrated collided with the more common value that's reflected back then and is still reflected today. And this is what we read in Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, to understand this value, we first need to understand the categories that are represented in these two phrases, us and them. So we'll begin with the fact of us and them. There's an us and there's a them. And it says, again, this man welcomes sinners and eats with who? Them. Well, who are them? Who are they? Well, in this case, they're identified as two groups, tax collectors and sinners is in quote. Now, the tax collectors of the day were individuals who contracted with Rome to collect taxes. And they were allowed to not only collect the taxes that Rome had levied, but to charge whatever fee they decided they wanted to charge of those they were collecting taxes from. And uh, the fee was their income, their what they got for collecting taxes. And so they would bid with Rome uh, based on how much they thought they could milk out of their neighbors, basically. So these were, this, this attracted, you know, very greedy and financially corrupt individuals, and they were hated by everyone around them. They had knowledge of the local scene because they were from there, but they would turn on their neighbors and use the power and the backing of the Roman garrisons to impoverish their neighbors. So that was the tax collectors. And the Pharisees were saying, we're not them. The second group was the sinners. Now, sinners is in quotes because it was the primary term that was used to identify prostitutes in the day. So let me ask you this question. Was it an accurate description for these Pharisees and teachers of the law to identify these two groups as them? Yes, it is an accurate description. They were Pharisees. They were not prostitutes. They were teachers of the law. They were not tax collectors. So us and them are simply pronouns, and they exist because they help us identify the distinction between groups and people. And those distinctions are real. Recently, uh, well, actually probably a couple years ago, I was riding my bike down uh, PCH, and I got to Main Street. The light turned, and as often happens on Main Street, just a tremendous amount of people were crossing uh, the street. And I noticed uh, a surfer uh, making his way. You could see a surfboard bobbing through the crowd. And he got uh, in front of me, and he turned to me, and he said one word. He said, spring breakers. That's all he said, (laughs) spring breakers. In that one word, he said a lot. (laughs) He made a very clear distinction between us and them. What he was saying in that one word is, we, you and I, we're local. We're from here. All of these irritating people crossing the street with me, (laughs) they're not from here. They're outsiders. Now, why was he doing this? Well, at a surface level, he would prefer there to be nobody there, and he could just go and surf and run back as quickly as he didn't have to navigate anyone in his way. But there's another reason why he was saying that to me, is he was expressing the need that we all have, and that is the need to belong somewhere. And and the word us, in its various forms, means that you and I belong somewhere. Whenever we say us, what we're really saying is, this is where I belong. This is the group that I'm a part of. This is the group that sees me as an us, and I see them as an us. Now, honestly, it made me feel good that a local surfer viewed me as an us, because local surfers, that's a pretty small group, and I'm usually not a part of those. 
He thought I belonged here. Now, we all have our groups, places where we are an us and places where we are a them. And the fact is, you can't have an us. You can't belong somewhere, have an us, unless you don't belong somewhere else, unless there exists also a them. So us and them are not bad words. They just simply describe the fact that we belong somewhere. Somewhere we need to be an us and somewhere where we're a them. Now, here's the challenge for us as followers of Christ. Whenever you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you join the group of people who are following Jesus Christ. You, you cross an invisible line. And you become, well, I'm a follower of Christ too, so you become one of us. And those who have not yet decided to follow Christ... They, at that point in time, they immediately become of them because they haven't made that same decision. Now, this is not to put them down. This is just the fact that exists. You're now an us and they're a them. In fact, if you're here today and you're a them, you have yet to decide to follow Jesus Christ, I'm going to explain why to us you're part of the most important group of people that are here. But we need to begin with understanding that us and them are real categories, not just when it becomes, comes to following Christ or not, but throughout all cultures and all society. There are groups of people, and there's always an us, and there's always a them. So the problem isn't the fact of us and them. The problem is this, is the attitudes that tend to develop from this fact. One of the things that's going on in our culture right now is an attempt to remove all distinctions so that there are no us's and there are no them's. And that's just not reality. But the reason there's that attempt is because of the attitudes, the negative attitudes that tend to develop around this fact that there are us and there are them in many different ways. And the challenge is this. Every group tends to move beyond the simple fact of us and them, and they begin to develop and form attitudes about them. And that's the problem. So now that we've described the fact of us and them, the fact isn't wrong. It's it's just a fact. Now we move on to the attitudes of us and them. Back to Luke 15, we read that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't just state the fact that this man welcomed sinners and eats with them. What did they do? They muttered it. Why did they mutter it? Well, muttering is an attitude word, right? You don't mutter because you want people to clearly hear your words. You mutter because you want people to get the attitude. Muttering makes the words less clear so that the attitude of opposition can take front and center on the stage of what you're trying to say. You know, if one of your children mutters, you know you got an attitude going on there. You know, if you're a boss and you say something and you're walking out of the room and you hear some muttering, you got some attitudes going on there. And this is what was happening here. This, the us in this situation had an attitude of opposition to the them. This is the common attitude that is developed in us versus them attitude. That surfer on Main Street who muttered spring breakers to me didn't just identify with me as a local. He was shaking his head in disgust at all of the out-of-towners. Maybe they weren't moving fast enough. Maybe they were looking around. Maybe they were enjoying the sun. Whatever they were, He didn't like them. And that was clear, not just 
He wasn't just saying, hey, look, out-of-towners, great, this is going to help our economy. No, <laughs> he had an attitude against them. And it's the same with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not just making an observation about the fact that, isn't that interesting? Jesus keeps hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And he even sits down and eats with them. Isn't that amazing? No, they weren't just interested in the facts. They were saying with their muttering attitude that Jesus had no business even associating with such awful people. And this is the tendency of every group, no matter how it's formed. Every group is almost never content just to be a group, just to be a place to belong. They have to point out how they're better than other groups. This is just human sinfulness and arrogance. A part of the reason why every group tries to explain why they're better than other groups is that it deepens the sense of belonging to those who are part of the group. Here's how it works. If my group, whatever defines my group, is better than your group, then the fact that I'm in my group says something about me and how amazing I must have been to qualify to be in this group. So the tendency is for those who are in a group to raise the barriers to those outside the group, to, to make us feel even a deeper sense of belonging. It's not enough for us just to say, hey, look, I'm a part of this group. But to also say, and you don't belong here, that deepens this sense of belonging. It's a false sense of belonging, but it deepens the sense of, of belonging. And this is what the Pharisees had done in Jesus' day. And honestly, it's what churches can still tend to do today if we're not very careful. This is why Jesus was such a shock to everyone in his day. He did miracles. He claimed to be from God. And then he would go and hang out with what they considered to be kind of the bottom moral end of the culture of the day. And it just didn't make any sense to anyone. Rather than raise the barriers, you, you think God in flesh would, would kind of raise the barriers to anyone who didn't really want to follow God. But rather than do that, he actually crossed the barriers and went to those groups. Now, he didn't lower what it meant to follow him, but he didn't stay inside these barriers. He lowered them and went to them. Rather than, in fact, rather than spend all his time with the group who followed him, he spent large amounts of time with those outside of the group. In fact, as you read through the Gospels that describe the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you discover is many of the, of the times that you read of what's going on, it's Jesus and his disciples interacting and going to places and hanging out with people that none of the religious elite would ever spend time with. So if you wanted to follow Jesus, you had to sit down with sinners. You had to hang out with tax collectors. You had to spend time at a well with a Samaritan woman who had been married five times because that's where Jesus was going. That's who he was spending time with. And so his disciples learned this early on, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were continually confused by this. And so in the rest of Luke chapter 15, Jesus explains to them why. They make this observation. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And the rest of Luke chapter 15, Jesus explains why. And he does this by telling three stories, three parables. The first story is about a man that has a hundred sheep and he loses one. 
The second story is about a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one. The last story is about a father with two sons. And he sees one of those sons leave home in the most hurtful way possible. We know this is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, in each of these stories, in each case, what was lost, the one sheep, the one coin, the one son, became the focus of the shepherd, the widow, and the father's attention. And the last story, the prodigal son story, is the longest one by far. And the longest part of the story is not just the telling of how the son left and the terms under which he returned, but actually the longest description is about the conflict that ensued between the father and the oldest son, the one who did not leave but stayed, over a party that the father throws for his son that finally returns. There's a conflict that ensues. And I believe that the reason this is the longest part of the description is because what Jesus is saying in this story is, you're going to be like this older brother. You're going to adopt this attitude if you're not careful. So let me look into the heart of this older brother for you because you'll see what's probably going to go on inside your heart if you decide to follow me. And you're going to develop this attitude towards those who have not decided to follow me yet. And so we're going to unpack this story. In this exchange, Jesus identifies what's really driving this us versus them attitude. What's behind it? And it begins with an us for us attitude. An us-for-us attitude. The older brother hears about a very expensive party that his father's having for his younger brother who has squandered all of the wealth that he took and has now come crawling back home and has not just been allowed back into the estate and into the home, but now this elaborate party, a very expensive party is being thrown for him. The one who's already cost the the family estate so much now is costing them more in a sense of the party. And the older brother, well, he, he loses it over this. Luke 15, 28 through 30, we read this. The older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party. He didn't want any part of this. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? Now, the older brother had not been living a selfish life. In fact, he'd accurately been saying he'd been slaving away for his dad. In the absence of his younger brother, he had a higher workload. And he accurately describes, I've been slaving away for you these last few years. So he's, he was not just a naturally selfish person. You know, his brother was more like that, to say, I want my inheritance, and I, want, I just want to go spend it on a wild lifestyle. Now, the other brother had been very, very responsible. So what happened to him in this moment that caused him to suddenly go selfish? To suddenly become us for us, or me for me? Well, while he had been slaving away in the fields, I believe he'd been focusing on the same two thoughts that we all tend to focus on. These two thoughts are just running in the back of our mind all the time, even if we don't allow them to come to the forefront. The, the thought, number one, is this, how we are better 
than someone. This just, it's embarrassing, but it just runs in our minds all the time. How we're better than someone. In this case, the older brother had been thinking, I think for some time, how he had been better than his younger brother. And when you look at the two, you have to admit the older brother has a point, right? I mean, clearly he was better than his younger brother. While he had been slaving to build the family estate, his brother had been parting and squandered half the family estate. He asked for his inheritance early, before his father died. In, in essence, what he was saying to his father is, I wish you were dead and I could have the money. And his father gave him the money. And so the older brother had been slaving, and the younger brother had been parting. The older brother had been obeying his father and respecting his father. His younger brother had done the exact opposite. He had rejected his father and broken his father's heart by leaving. So the thought that he was better than his younger brother was not a new thought that occurred the moment the father threw the welcome back home party. Now, it was the party that was the flashpoint. It, it was just the moment that brought all of the years of that thought to the forefront. My guess is this. Now, this is not in the parable that Jesus told, but this would be my guess, is that every year that the rains were bad and things got really tight, the older brother would probably shake his head many times and discuss at the situation that his younger brother had put them all in. I mean... Before massive irrigation, you know, you would take good years and you would store up resources to handle the famine years in this part of the world. But with the younger brother taking half of the resources, they, they were on, they had to be tight. And I would think that really put a lot of pressure on them and that the older brother would have to over and over again think this, I can't believe what my brother did. I would think every time Things got really hard for him every long, hard, hot day in the sun. All it would take would be a little thought of his brother with all of that money off in some beach resort, living it up. And it would make him mad just to think of what his younger brother had done. And I would think, too, that what's implied in this parable is that the father, if not every day, on a regular basis, would, would walk out and look out on the horizon and wait for his son's return and probably pray for his son's return. And I would think that many times as the older brother saw his dad walk to the edge of their property and look out on the horizon, anger would fill his own heart over how his brother, his younger brother, had broken his dad's heart. So just take years of these thoughts. <sighs> can't believe what my younger brother done. And you add all of these thoughts together, and then he returns, and then there's a party unlike he's ever seen. It's no wonder the brother's first thought was, what about it? me? See, the parables of Jesus are not just interesting stories. They're designed to help us see not what goes on in the hearts of some random people, but what goes on inside all, all of us. They're very descriptive of us, all of us. And the point that's being made here is, yeah, what's wrong with these brothers? No, that's not the point. The point is, we're kind of like the older brother. We spend a good deal of our days thinking that we're better than someone. 
We all do this. Now, it may be an actual younger brother that you think you're better than, or another family member that you think you're better than, or someone you work with, or someone down the street, but we're always aware of someone that we think we're better than. Someone maybe we don't even know. We just kind of take this approach to life. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I did this on Friday with a, an Apple Genius. You know, an Apple Genius, those are the ones that you go to the Apple store to get help with your product, and you go to what's called a Genius Bar, where an Apple Genius helps you with your product. And I don't know what it is. It's, I'm sure, well, I do know what it is. It's just my own arrogance. It's someone who's labeled a genius, I just want to take them down. I mean, I just don't think you should call yourself a genius. <laughs> now, I didn't say anything. There were no words, but it was, it was just this attitude. Whenever I walk in there and I see that word genius, I'm just like, that's wrong. <laughs> and so I decide to single-handedly take on Apple. <laughs> Never works. <laughs> and I think my wife, who was with me, noticed this attitude, and so she completely set me straight not by confronting me, she invited the guy to attend Seabreeze. <laughs> so at that moment, like, I, I can't compete with him anymore. You know, we're, we're inviting him to church. And, and what she was doing, really, was what I'm talking about here. Us for them. Not, hey, genius, huh? <laughs> us versus them or us for us. We, we just do this all the time. I mean, I have to watch myself watching TV especially the news. I'll hear someone say something, I'll just go, oh. Anytime you see yourself or feel like you're shaking your head at somebody else, you're doing this. You're thinking about how you're better than them. Now, like the older brother, we're not necessarily wrong in our assessment. The problem is that all of these thoughts and the emotions, we might, we might actually be better than them in some way. The problem is that all of these thoughts and emotions that support them don't just stay bottled up inside. They spill over into a focus on life that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for us to ever notice the needs of those around us because we're busy thinking about how we're better. And then once we've spent enough time thinking that we're better than someone, we feel justified to focus our attention on thought number two, what we deserve. Now, these are the two tapes that play in the background of our mind. How we're better than what we deserve. This is what happened in the case of the older brother. After years of slaving and obeying, the disobedient partier got a bigger party than the older brother had ever had. What are the two words that go with that? Not fair. Now, listen to his case again. Here, here it is. Look, he says to his father, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered... Isn't that son of yours? I don't even know who this... He's this brother of yours, but now he's a son of yours. Who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home. You kill a fatted calf for him. Now, honestly, he has a strong case, doesn't he? He's been slaving while his younger brother's been traveling and partying. That's a problem. He's been obeying while his brother's been disobeying. You add up these two lives, the older brother and the younger brother, one that's been a lazy rebel, the other that's been an obedient son, and the lazy rebel, you put the equal mark next to the lazy rebel and he gets fatted calf, which is about the most expensive party you could throw at the time. And next to the hardworking, respectful son, you get 
not even, not equals, a little young goat, which was a party on the cheap at this time. Now, if you just change the names and a few details, this could be you or me, and this could be our case. In fact, let me ask you, just to think about this, what is your case? And we all have several. And they're all built on these same two thoughts, how we're better than someone and what we think we deserve that we're not getting. Who is your case against and what is it you think you deserve that you're not getting? We all have things. And it's why we have this us for us first and then this us for them attitude. It's what drives it. Because it seems to us that God is kind of like the father in this parable, unconcerned, maybe even oblivious about making everything fair. I mean, isn't that the way it looks? Honestly, you look out, can't you find someone who's worse than you getting more than you? Yeah, you don't have to look very far to find that. And the question is, well, who's running this show? Why? What's wrong with the Heavenly Father? And so then, if God's not going to see this and do something about it and get us what we deserve, then we're going to have to take on that job ourselves. And this justifies this us for us and then this us for them approach to life. We arrive at us for us after thousands of thoughts about how we're better and thousands of thoughts about what we deserve. And then it just seems reasonable for us to be selfish and reasonable for us to develop an attitude against those who are, we think, worse than us and getting more than us. But in making this point, the older brother misses two larger and even more important points. In this parable, what God is saying is, okay, you may have a small point. Yes, maybe you're a little better than this person. And yes, maybe you deserve more than you're getting. But you're missing the two bigger points. And it's these two bigger points that drive the us for them attitude that Jesus had and invites us, his followers, to have. This is the father's response to the son's case against him. What's behind the us for them attitude? This is also God's response. Here's the father's response. Luke 15, 31 through 32. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If we're really going to adopt this value that was represented in the life of Jesus, this us for them attitude, it requires two additional thoughts, really to counter and replace the I'm better and I deserve thoughts. Here's the replacement thought. First replacement thought is not how we're better, but how we are similar. How we're similar. See, as the brother, brother's busy looking at all the moral differences, he overlooked two very important similarities. Both he and his brother had rejected their father. I don't know if you picked this up. It ends with the brother mad at his father. That story begins with the younger brother mad at his father. Now, yes, the younger brother took it farther, but the older brother was walking down the same road. They both rejected their father. See, when we fixate on the moral distance between us and someone else, it causes us to forget or ignore the vast moral distance between all of us and God. 
Now, we're busy. Let's say we're all on stage. We're busy saying, hey, you know, I'm two feet in front of you. And we forget the fact that we're all supposed to be in Hawaii. You know, one foot versus 5,000 miles or whatever it is. This, this is not, yes, okay, maybe I'm a little better than you. And maybe you're a little better than me. But we're all a long ways away from God. That's the distance that's the real problem. And God, in his wisdom, gives us, at least gives me, and I know many of you, a chance to remind ourselves of the fact that there is more similarity between us than there are differences. Yes, the differences are there, and yes, they are real, and yes, they do matter, but they're, they're not the biggest thing. The difference is between the distance between us and God. That's the problem. When our two kids were, were little, I remember one time I was meeting with a, a married couple uh, at, at the church office at Seabreeze. It's before we had the property. We were releasing uh, some office space, and I was meeting with them, and they were, you know, we were talking about some struggles they were having in their marriage and some struggles they were having in parenting. And I think we were having a good conversation. And then I got a phone call from my wife, and she knew I was meeting with them. This is the only time she's done this. She basically said on the phone, I know you have an important meeting, but these kids are out of control. Can you come home? <laughs> so here I am counseling someone on how to raise children. <laughs> and I've got to hang up the phone and say, you know what? This is going to have to wait because my own house is burning down right now. <laughs> i got to run home and help. And, you know, I, I thought it would just reluse, you know, remove any credibility I had in helping them. But actually what I noticed on their face was first a smile <laughs> and then relief. It's like, oh. So you struggle with parenting too. And you struggle with marriage too. Okay, so you may know some things that I don't know yet or... I may know something, but, but the issue is we're more similar than we are different. It was just a great reminder to all of us. So the, the brother forgot that both he and his younger brother had rejected the father. He also forgot that both he and his brother were related. And they were brothers. That's why it says this, this son of yours. Like what, did the genetics change? Are you no longer a brother? They were created for the same family. One left, the other stayed. This brother of yours, he says. The father says. See, the brother says, this son of yours, and the father counters, no, this brother of yours. Don't forget that. They, the point is this, they, whoever they are, they're not just one of them. They're not just aliens. They're, the genetics of their soul matches the genetics of our soul. Every person has the same desires, same struggles, same needs that we all do. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not because you're better than someone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. You may even be worse. The reason you and I are followers of Jesus Christ is simply because of the mercy and kindness of God. So instead of thinking about how we're better, take some time to think about how we're similar. And then instead of thinking about what we deserve, we must also think about what can only happen now. These are the replacement thoughts. How we are similar, and not what we deserve, but what can only happen now. Here's what the father says. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. In other words, don't worry about the money and what's fair. You're already way beyond what's fair, son. 
In the end, he said, you're, you're going to get everything. But now is not the time to focus on what you deserve. He goes on to say, but we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, the father had something on his mind that superseded everything else. Finding his lost son. He knew that the path that his youngest son was on was going was to kill him. He, he knew that path was a path that ended in death. And the point is this, that the Father's making and therefore God is making to us. They're not just them. They are people like us who are pursuing what we would pursue on our own. They are what we were. They are lost. They are dead to God. And if they're not found, and they die, separated from God, then there's nothing that can be done about it at that point. Now is the window of opportunity. Time is running out. This is no time to be selfish. This is no time to think you're better than somebody else. No time to think about what you deserve. Fairness and getting what we all deserve is going to happen eventually. But that can wait. What can only happen now is for someone who is still alive to come to their senses like that says that prodigal son did and return to the Heavenly Father. This is, this is the window. So what does Jesus expect from us as we relate to them? Well, he asks us to take the initiative with them. That's what's being said in the three stories. What, what Jesus is saying is put yourself in the shoes of the shepherd and the widow and the father, what would you do? Would you just sit there and wait, or would you do something? No, you'd do something. That's what he's asking us to do. I mean, if you were a shepherd with 100 sheep and one wandered off, would you see it as an acceptable loss? Oh, well, I got 99. No, you'd, you'd do what the shepherd did. You'd mount a nighttime search effort for just one. If you were a widow and all you had was 10 coins left to your name and you lost one, we'd just say, well, at least I still have nine. No, you'd, you'd do what you do when you lose your wallet. Stop everything, turn the house upside down, get on your hands and knees, look for the thing that's lost. And if you were a father, and one of your sons broke your heart and left you, would you find comfort in the fact that, well, at least I got one left? No. All of us who are dads who know what we do. We could hardly stop thinking about the one that left. And like this, Father, you would probably daily scan the horizon waiting for that son's return. You see, the line between us and them marks lost and found. We're not some club that you join to get your needs met. We're part of the greatest search and rescue effort that God has ever mounted. If you've been found and you're following Jesus, you're one of us. And now, like Jesus, we... Live for them, for people who are not here yet. And you know what the truth is? The vast majority of those who have yet decided to follow Jesus Christ, they're not going to come here on their own. They're not going to drive down Gothard and say, hey, it's a beautiful Sunday morning. I think I'll turn in there and go to church. That's never going to happen. Or rarely will that happen. Now, this gathering is open to everyone, but most in this community, they're not going to take the first steps. They're not going to initiate. We have to go to them. This occurs as we take the initiative to even just strike up conversations. 
do what my wife did with the apple genius. Invite him to church. See, the shepherd would have never found the lost sheep by making sure the door to the fold was open. He had to cover the distance. The widow was not going to find her lost coin by holding on to the other nine. She had to get down on her hands and knees and search for it. For the father, the distance that needed to be covered was not in miles. He didn't know where his son was. He couldn't just go and bring him home. The distance was the softening of the son's heart had to occur. So every day he'd walk out and scan the horizon. And it doesn't say, but I would guess that he prayed as he walked. And he did it for years before one day his son finally came home. So here's the question for all of us. Who are we praying for? Who are we searching for? Who are we getting down on our hands and knees and doing whatever it takes to help them find their way back to God? This is why, as a church, we're not content just to gather as us, as important as this is. And this is why, if you have found your way here and you have yet to make this decision, you're the most honored and important person here. And my prayer is that over time, we may become people of whom is said the same thing that was said about Jesus. These people, they welcome sinners and they actually eat with them in their homes and in other homes. Let's pray. Father, your word always has the ability to, to peel back the layers of what we can see and reveal what we cannot see. What really is important, what's really going on behind the scenes, what really is taking place in our hearts. And we confess to you that we spend way too much time comparing ourselves with other people and feeling our, that we're a little better and then thinking about what we deserve because of that. And it blinds us to the real point of time right now, and that is to join your search and rescue mission. So we pray for those in this community that are far from you, that will never on their own walk in these doors. But you've placed them in our lives. And we bump into them, we work with them, we live next to them. And I pray that you would Help us to see them as you do. And then take the initiative with them as you did. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.